Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I will be interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-double-e-changehappen.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with all of the shows and back episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 16, with the title, Why Isn't Our Public Transport Network Accessible for All? And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Andy Barrow. Andy and I are both members of the Professional Speaking Association and have met virtually a number of times over the past few years. Andy describes himself as an accessibility consultant for South Eastern Railway. He uses its expertise in teams and from his previous career as an international athlete and his experience as a world traveler to improve the processes and culture around assisted travel. I asked Andy to describe his superpower and he said, getting groups of individuals to recognize each other's superpowers and to work together to maximize their combined powers. Sounds interesting. Hello, Andy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joanne. Fantastic to be here. It's uh, it's very hot out, so looking forward to getting out in the sun after we've chatted. Oh, yeah. It's a record-breaking few days, middle of early August, isn't it? Well, yeah, early August still. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it's lovely. It's been been a beautiful... Beautiful summer all round, especially with the COVID backdrop. The weather we've had has given us the opportunity to um, be out and about if we're responsible and, uh, and enjoy that. Mm, I agree completely. So tell me, why don't you feel that our public transport network is accessible for all? What can we do? Do you know, it's an interesting question. I think, firstly, I want to answer it by kind of splitting or at least caveat in sort of public transport. I, you know, I think as a, a wheelchair user, as a person who's used a wheelchair for a long time now, well over 20 years, you know, I've been very lucky to sort of travel all over the place and sort of understand the landscape a little bit. And there's certain aspects of the public transport system that are going to be very hard to make physically accessible. You know, if you take something like the tube, for example, it's a Victorian invention. You know, it's it's going to be almost impossible to, you know, drop lift shafts into the kind of, if you imagine the tunnels under London as a ball of wall, if you're going to thread that needle with lift shafts, that's going to be very, very difficult. So what we're having to look at is accessibility through assistance. Um, so to answer your question through that prism, at the moment, there's two reasons, and that is that the processes don't always give the staff trying to assist the passengers the best possible chance of giving each passenger the assistance they need. And the second part is the culture. And that's basically the crux of that is perhaps the organizations or the staff not fully understanding the importance of people being able to have these assistance measures in order to travel and navigate the world independently. I completely agree. I I had an epiphany probably a couple of years ago because when we got onto the trains, when we got on the underground, there's always accessible seats near the entrance just by the doors, isn't there? So they're either embroidered into the seat so you can tell it's accessible on the, on the tube or the stickers. Are, and certainly my train company is Southwestern and it's very easy to see uh, which ones are the assistance chairs. And it always frustrates me to see people just sitting in those by default because it's the easiest chair. Uh, okay, I'm not for one minute saying I'm judging people because they may have a hidden disability. There may be a valid reason for sitting there. But we know often the person sitting there probably could sit somewhere else if they wished. They had they have they have options. And that puts the burden of responsibility onto someone with an accessibility need to have to ask them to move, doesn't it? And I always find that that, that creates this awkwardness. It's a full train. And suddenly the person with an accessibility need is having to do all of the hard work and confront and ask. And why can't we as a culture 
I, th- I think in Japan they have a culture where those those seats are never occupied by people who don't need them. It's a cultural thing; they wouldn't dare. Well, we don't always have that culture in the UK, do we? No, no. There's there's sort of there, there's a certain politeness in, in in other parts of the world that that does dictate that. But then also, if you look culturally at the other parts of the world, there are you know differences in attitudes toward disability. There, some of that is actually because people. Um, will be thinking, well, I don't want people to think I'm disabled. And not for the right reasons, maybe for the wrong reasons, because in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with having an impairment or disability. I'm not going to get into the whole, you know, uh, some people don't like the term disability because they say it's the, you know, it's the physical world that disables us. I'm impaired. Disability implies I'm, I'm less than. Uh, uh, for me, that's semantic. Um, but some people don't like the idea that they might be seen as having a disability for that reason. Um, so I think it's a, it's a difficult one, but I, I totally get your point of having to be the person to have the confrontation, to have the awkward conversation. That's a, that's a really difficult one. An easy example as well would be something, um, I, I don't take the bus as often, but I do take the bus. And if you have ever got on a bus, you will see the signs that say, you know, there's normally one space for a wheelchair and, it's wheelchairs or buggies. And the sign just says wheelchairs take precedent over buggies, essentially. And you're expected to have that fight. So in theory, if I got on a bus and there was a uh, a young single parent there and she or he had, say, two young kids in a buggy, a further baby in arms, I could actually get there and go, move, get out of the way, sort that out, fold the buggy up, do something. And, it, you know, for me, that's that's kind of not not right. You know, I get, you know, so they're, we're expected to have that argument and sometimes the rules are so rigid that it will be one or the other. I've seen people have to get off the bus, you know, for that rather than just kind of sorting it out with, you know, with the driver's help. And sometimes, you know, the driver abdicates responsibility. That's for a whole other set of reasons. I'm sure the driver, he or she is kind of pilloried all day, every day, you know, with, 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 with that thing. But the point is it's left in the middle for people to sort out and we don't really yet have those tools to do that. And part of the reason I do this is so that we can all talk to each other and not be scared about saying the wrong thing or asking why, um, you know, people need certain things. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that the the driver, the, the 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 passenger safety representative, however they're described, they get a lot of stick by a lot of people and a lot of conflicting priorities. So this, I, I, I certainly wouldn't want to cast any doubt on their professionalism. But I, I've, I've travelled with uh, a friend of mine who is a she uses a wheelchair, it's a powered wheelchair on London buses on around London. And I, I've seen the challenges she experiences. One, getting the driver's attention. She's had, she's had buses just drive off, leave her on the curb without, without spotting her. Then there's the, often she'll end up with this uh, driver who, uh, I was going to say grumpy, kind of, you feel there's a bit grudging. This is impacting his schedule, the, the, putting him behind time, uh, having to get out of the bus, lower the ramp, allow the, my, my friend to get on. And then when she's on, she has to fight her way between behind, between the people who are there. It's quite crowded. And then sometimes the driver will say, next time, would you mind reversing in? Because it's easier then. Or easier for who? If it's, yeah, often we're designing these things for easier for everybody else, not easier for the person who has the disability or the accessibility needs. And just having spent many, many journeys with her using public transport, I've got a lot more empathy for the, the needs of accessible transport for uh, for people and not everybody has the luxury of a powered wheelchair i mean we've got people using uh manual driven wheelchairs or manual, manual push with their arms and not everybody has a personal assistant or a carer with them and there's always this assumption that if you're if you have a disability you're going to have uh someone with you to help but that's not the case is it no it certainly isn't the case and you know and this whole idea of you know, public confidence in traveling. A lot of the reason, you know, I, I do what I do is I've been very lucky. I've been very privileged to have just the way the chips fell for me. You know, I had an accident that changed my life at 17. 
Um, but then I got into sport and sport took me all over the place and it gave me a lot of confidence. And I sort of, to, to use the word epiphany as a good word, I sort of realized a few years ago, it's, it, okay, I'm helping myself, but I am helping other people as well because for every person like me who maybe encounters a negative travel experience, gets a little bit annoyed, gets a bit angry, makes some phone calls, is a bit dogged about it, has the articulation, the education to maybe fire off a letter, argue the toss with the powers that be. Um, there are many other people who just don't have the time, you know, are not able to put that stuff together and re- remain emotionally um, even while they're kind of delivering, you know, their grievance and, you know, lack the confidence to either use the surface again and, worst of all, think it's their fault. You know, and I, I just put, you know, I always, when I have some kind of negative travel experience, always put myself in the position of the person, the, the my imagined person who maybe doesn't get out very often, has been building themselves up to make this trip because either they are anxious about it or they're excited about it for a long time. And when it goes wrong, they kind of almost go home with their tail between their legs and are really sad about it and, and, and take some time to get over that and think it's their fault. And that's kind of, that, that's kind of why I do what I do because I, because I can, you know, and I, you know, I can, I can kind of have these arguments hopefully on behalf of people. I don't want that to sound martyrish, but I feel like if you're in a position where you're okay, then you try to help other people because also, you know, for, for example, I'm lucky I, I have a car. I could just get annoyed, get in my car. If I get really annoyed, I could just get on Uber and get a taxi and go home. But some people don't have any of those facilities. In my in my wheelchair, I have a tiny wheelchair. It, it weighs about twelve kilograms. It breaks down very small. You know, I can pretty much get in any car. I don't need ramped access in a car. You know, whereas I, I suspect um, your friend that that you mentioned as an example w- would need a taxi with ramp access, and that has its own issues. A car of a certain size, you know. So it's it's all swings around about us. We all have pluses and minuses, but I just feel like I'm I'm kind of very lucky on this front, and I need to speak up for people who aren't as lucky, but also have the perspective to be able to play both sides on this. To your point of you know drivers and staff who, you know, sometimes get abused for just trying to do their job. Mm. My friend's been uh, on a train, and when she gets to the station, she wants to get off that. There's nobody available to help her with the ramp. So then the train just basically closes the doors and goes off. So she's now effectively being held prisoner by the train company, transported somewhere she doesn't want to be. And has to have that argument. She doesn't want to have that argument. She just wants to go home. She wants to have her tea. And now she's in a situation where she now has to get angry. She has to get upset. She has to start talking to people. And it's again and again and again. And it's, I'm not sure how often it happens, but probably several times a year this has happened to yeah. her. Yeah. It, it's hard. It's hard to, um, it's hard to explain that frustration. It's also hard to explain that anxiety that something may happen. It's hard to physically quantify that, you know, when, um, you know, everyone that's in a minority will have a, have a similar thing, you know, whether it's, you know, you know, a consequence of, of their color, a consequence of their gender, you know, everyone will have that understanding who's not in the absolute majority. You know, what's, what's interesting for me is looking wider at diversity, but for the fact that I happened to break my neck when I was 17, I'd be the absolute majority. You know, I'm sort of white Western male. 40 years old. And so it has given me a different perspective. It's opened me up to a lot of different communities um, to understand that. But back to the transport, yeah, the that anxiety, I feel that as somebody who I think is pretty confident. And you have that idea of what am I going to do here? How am I going to get around this? And it's not a case of I can't travel. It's a case of, right, I'm going to have to get some people to break the rules. I'm going to have to enlist unsolicited help. You know, so I'm looking around for the platform for a couple of people who might be strong enough to to lift me onto the train, knowing full well that uh, what what station am I going to? Is it a through station? By that I mean, is it a station where it's not terminate? The train isn't terminating there, so I have a finite amount of time to get my arm out of the door and stuff like that. Um, the reason I work at Southeastern is so this doesn't happen, and so we can hopefully all turn up and travel, you know, as and how we want. 
mistakes are always going to happen, you know, but for me also is how those mistakes are dealt with. And I think a big frustration for, you know, people with disabilities on public transport is just the time that it takes for you. You know, your friend, okay, she misses her stop. It's a pain, all right, you know, but if it was one stop and you got back straight on the next train and it was 10 minutes and you were done, you'd be like, all right, all right, well, that was a pain, but it was done, you know, a bit like, I don't know, forgetting where you parked or something like that. But it's when it mounts up and and it's it's those time costs taken out of your day every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year. I think there was a really interesting article a few months back that likened having um, a, a sort of a, a severe disability to um, having a, a job that equated to about 30 hours a week in terms of your time cost just just to live. Just to, you know, that's, that's things, that's not even transport. That's things like just getting yourself dressed and stuff like that. Uh, and again, you want to be able to get all this across without martyring too much. You know, that, that's always my angle as a person in the minority because I'm a firm believer that you need to represent your minority and whether you like it or not, you're an ambassador for it. So the bitter disabled guy is a really bad look. Oh, can I help you, sir? No piss off why would you ask me for help you know blah 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 because the next person may need help it's interesting you mentioned this martyrdom and uh the angry minority here we go again the angry minorities trying to break the privilege wall down again and uh, and all that happens is the armor goes up doesn't it the armor the deflection the water boundary the kind of oh come on don't be a snowflake it's not that bad really just a little just a little thing um I'm, I'm, as you're talking now, I'm thinking about the, the guy on the plane, you know, the one that uh, where his wheelchair wasn't delivered to the gate or was lost or, uh, and they offered him a, a pushed or a, 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 an assistance wheelchair. And he said, no, that's making me disabled. I want choice. I want advocacy. What's your take on that? No, absolutely. You know, you're, you're, you know, he, he's, he's completely right. You know, and I encountered that before I worked on the trains you know, aviation was where I learned as an athlete, you travel around in large groups. Okay. So you have support staff. I understand mistakes are going to happen. If you're traveling as a 12 person squad, each person has two wheelchairs. That's 24 wheelchairs. Things are going to happen. But if you're traveling on your own and your chair doesn't get brought to you, that is massively disempowering, you know, and it's embarrassing and insulting because you're set there. You're like, I am a world-class athlete. You know, and I don't know whether there's there's a couple of instances. It happened famously to Frank Gardner, didn't it? He's the BBC correspondent, but it also happened to another guy who actually dragged himself through the airport. Um, and, you know, I, I've met him. He's a lovely guy. He's a wheelchair racer. He's absolutely huge as well. So he's built like the proverbial. Um, and he was in a situation where he could drag himself through the airport. But even as a full-time athlete, I'm kind of – or. or when I was, I'm sort of much more severely disabled than him. So that wasn't available to me, but it's like, you're not going to demean, you know, someone of our strength, confidence and power by saying, we're going to push you through the airport. That's not the way we want assistance to work. We want to be empowered to be independent as individuals, you know, and I've taken much more, you know, in recent years or in aviation of having that conversation, but then I know my point of power. I know that if I remain in my seat on the plane, I know exactly how much that costs the airline every single minute that plane is delayed. But often the airlines get unfairly blamed for it because most airports actually contract assistance services to an organization that, that does it across the airport. So there are all these different dynamics at play. But I find if you kind of remain polite and just talk about, you know, Say, look, this is the situation. I'm, I'm not going to change and, and, until you bring my chair back. There's no problem. I don't mind the mistake. I'm just looking for resolution. Even I'm not even too fast. I, you know, swift resolution is a nice to have, but I know it's hurting you more than me. But can we just move you into a corridor? No, you can't because then you're going to forget about me. And it just having those conversations about when people will take your wheelchair from you and the idea of, that as well, the idea of what a wheelchair is, and it's not just a wheelchair, it is so much more. It's very cliche to say it's your legs, um, but the simple fact of it is that without the specific wheelchair I use, 
um, I'd be way less independent. We'll go back to your friend again. If you put her in my wheelchair, it sounds like as a power chair user, she'd barely be able to push it. It's no use to her. It's a piece of junk to her. Me sitting in her wheelchair would be no more than me going, oh, this is kind of fun. This is a bit of a toy, but I don't need it. I can't drive it like you can. Probably going to crash it into everything, break something off it, and break someone in the process. You know, these things are bespoke to us. We can't just change out of them. It's, it's massively important. I mean, a good example would be why don't you just wear someone else's glasses, Joanne? Yeah, completely. Uh, one thing to say there, and I talk about this a lot, it's about it's recognizing that you should have a plan A, but also knowing that plan A doesn't always work. You don't get everything right first time, and, and we all accept that things go wrong. What I say to people, an organization should be judged by its plan B. When it goes wrong, how do they step up? How do they put themselves out there and say, sorry, Andy, this isn't right for you. Come to you and say, what can we do to make this work for you? And you say, thank you so much for asking. This is how I think we can solve the problem. But organizations trying to give you this one-size-fits-all solution based on their perception of you without ever involving you and giving you agency about the decisions. Because I, I know from my own personal characteristic, if someone says to me, Joe, Joanne, what is going to make you happy in this scenario now? I'll say, this is what's going to make me happy. This is how we can get out of it. Thank you for asking. I really, I really, I really feel so empowered again. And that must be the same for you. What's the plan B, isn't it? Yes, definitely. We're back to our equality versus equity, aren't we? You know, what what is your ideal customer service experience? You know, some somebody with the exact same disability as me may have a drastically different outlook on the world, and that is to be, you know, respected. You know, within the, I guess, you know, within the bounds of safety. You know, so it's, um, you know, that is a it's a really interesting point, and it was funny that actually I have to have to say for for, for Southeastern, the reason I'm now a consultant with them is because I had a bad experience with them in the beginning and I wasn't happy with the way it was dealt with. But when we broke it down and I got in and I spoke to some people face-to-face, I said, look, I think I can help. And they listened, so credit to them. So if I take that on a, you know, if I were to take that in a snapshot of a 24-hour period, it'd be like, oh, man, you know, that was an awful travel experience. But taking in a snapshot of a two-year period, I was like, wow, they listened to the point where they're now allowing and empowering me to try and help their staff make life better for other people with disabilities that use the network. So that plan B is, is, a, is, a, is an excellent point. Yeah. I genuinely believe that most organizations want to do the right thing. They, 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 they believe they're doing the right thing. There's this corporate belief that we've got our policies. We've got, we've got people who will deal with this. We've got our customer service team who are person centric, all these good words. And I, I do believe that most big, large companies do set out with the right intentions. But what tends to happen is this is like this Chinese whispers of, of intent. It gets dissolved down, down the chain. And often it comes down to the one person you deal with. And that person has the power of influence on making your experience fantastic or poor. And it's it's almost like impossible for a company to predict that. Uh, so what's your advice to, to companies in, in trying to make sure that, that it, the company culture really does permeate right down to the individuals on the, on the floor? I think it's a really tough one. You know, I normally refer back to my kind of sporting background as well. You know, you have to look first at, you know, how how you treat the employees in the in the in the company, this, you know, we're almost getting to a point of, you know, company culture and engagement. You're almost kind of switching, switching subjects to sort of, um, employee engagement and, and, and giving them the understanding of, you know, why is it important? Why is it important that every person with a disability should be able to travel? Why is it important that everyone's gender should be respected? Why is it important that no customer or staff member should be abused with a, you know, through, have a protected characteristic abused you know it's it's that understanding it's knowing you know why why people don't kind of why people aren't getting the message finding out a bit more about them it's treating them well in order that they then want to treat the customer well knowing it's also demystifying failure okay and i'm a big one for people must fail 
everyone has to mess stuff up. All right. You know, you wouldn't have learned to walk or make a cup of tea or, you know, get good right or get good at anything if you didn't mess it up a lot. That is, that is what life is built on. But failure is so frowned upon in some organizational culture that people would rather avoid a problem than actually deal with it. And if you get avoidance of failure, you get blame culture, you know, and when you get that, you get employees that don't feel empowered to be able to use their common sense to deviate slightly from the training they've had and see the wood for the trees, if you will. You know, because the bottom line, you know, with things is like, I'm a person standing in front of you or sitting in front of you, a person asking for help. Are you going to be able to help me without hurting me or you? If at some point, some minor rules got bent somewhere along the line, we can maybe look at that next time and see if you could do something slightly differently. But for now, we got it done. If you don't have that, you have a staff member looking at a person who needs help thinking, my manager told me I had to do X, Y, Z. I value this job. What if I don't do X, Y, and Z to the letter and I get the sack? What's worse, annoying one person in a wheelchair or losing my job. So I totally see it from both sides. That's why it has to start from company culture. You know, we have to make it okay for our employees to make mistakes through learning or train so they minimize the mistakes through learning on the job, which is where people like myself come in, uh, people like yourself come in if companies are, are, are looking to, you know, sort of alter how they, you know, view people and gender and, and trans culture. It's, it's a really, you know, you, you can't just write it out of a manual. You need people who are living that experience to talk about their lived experience and really importantly, why it's important that you should respect that. Completely agree. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. If your culture of your organization is one of cover-up, one of it's the rules, hiding behind the rules, then that, you can see that from a, a, a customer experience point of view. It's where people feel empowered. They know that their, their organization is going to back them up if they make the right decision, maybe the, for the right reasons, and go outside of the rules. And I think you see that all the time in airlines. Airlines have a very open culture around safety. Safety is paramount. And they're very, airlines are very quick to speak out on, on issues where safety is concerned. But look at other organizations and people sometimes accuse the NHS of being an organization where things are covered up and people don't speak out. Uh, so again, it's trying to look at those two cultures and maybe if you're listening today, what's your culture? Would you feel empowered to, to go the extra mile and make a difference to somebody? Or do you feel you had to hide behind the rules or there's too many layers of management and permission to get rather than saying, I can fix this for you. I can do this. And it's that, it's that two different cultures, isn't it? It's, it's what, what are the steps of having the confidence to be empowered as well? I think that's probably a, another conversation, how you have to treat people in order to, that the, they flourish, you know, within the organization and, and everyone, you know, uses their kind of harmony for, for good rather than not. But it's interesting that you should mention the NHS. I mean, if anyone out there wants to read a, a good book, I think Matthew Said's second book called Black Box Thinking actually compares directly the aviation industry and the uh, health industry um, because he, you know, rightly says just about the most dangerous place to be in the world is in a pressure sealed tin can 40,000 feet above the earth. If you make a mistake there, it's, the consequences are fairly dire. So over the years, the aviation industry has very painfully broken open every every crash in in, in awful detail to be able to prevent it happening again. Whereas in the health industry, you've seen more and more cover up. So the advancement of that, and with particular reference to safety records, has been massively stilted compared to it. And it's that psychology, you know, that psychology of dissonance of like, you know, ignoring problems um, that, that, that he kind of hones in on because that's his, that's his kind of thing as a psych and a sports psych. Um, but it, you know, it, it really is interesting. It's interesting just how <clears throat> toxic blame culture is within organizations and how much it sort of stems any kind of creativity and progress. 
people sometimes are scared to say sorry, scared to say I apologize, scared to sometimes own, take responsibility, aren't they? I mean, I hear people use the phrase, it's a mistake. It, it's a mistake. So not I made a mistake. It is almost like depersonalizing, pushing that away from them, not taking any responsibility for that. I didn't mean to. But, well, you didn't mean to, but the impact was. So people often think about intent is the only part of the equation, but impact versus intent, that's a whole big equation we've got to think about. How does it affect you as an individual, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think you, you, you said it earlier, I think nobody means to make a mistake. You know, that's us going back to sport. Again, people get frustrated with mistakes. That's in the past. We can't change it. Actually, it's in sport, so it really doesn't bloody matter at this point in time. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to get hung up on the mistake. You know, we'll talk about it after. But nobody means to make. No, no one's going out there going, "I am going to make disabled people's re- days really bad on the public transport network today." You know, no, no one's doing that. You know, but it's that 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 fear around being wrong, getting it wrong, failing, and the consequences of that. You know, whether it is just the consequence to your ego or the consequence to, you know, your, your life if you lose job security through it, you know, is, is actually placed at higher importance at the moment of, of, of getting it right. Yeah. So when I, when I talk to companies and do uh, DNI audits, one of the questions on the questionnaire is, do you feel you can speak out without fear of recrimination? And that, that's a good way of judging a company culture. If you feel you can share anything and no one's going to come blame you for that, they're going to take that as, as, as good feedback. Uh, maybe, maybe they're actually every item of feedback they get, but you can, you can give feedback, give suggestions without fearing that someone's going to look at you and go, well, oh, they're a troublemaker or they're being awkward. Yeah. Feedback's really important. People having a right to reply, people having, you know, people feeling like they've been heard. You know, particularly, you know, within say employment rank, people feeling like they've been heard. And it's another important thing for people in the employment rank to see the managers and have access to them. You know, when I work with the managers, I say, you know, you, you have to do your walkarounds, you know, you have to go and meet people and you have to face the fact that as a manager, you may get somebody coming out to you that that needs to vent and wants to tell you something you've got you know that's that's why you're a manager you have to wear that you know you don't necessarily need to act on it because only a small part of it might be worth acting on but people need that because then they feel heard and you feel like you're having a conversation and you're getting feedback for what is going on in the organization i think that's really really important because only through that transfer of information you know do we get the best possible outcomes to any problems that arise? And that's another thing with the with the transport network, really. There's just, you know, the information's out there on how to do this. Just at the moment, it's siloed and we're not communicating properly. And we shouldn't feel awful about that. Every organization's doing that. Every elite sports team strives to communicate the best they possibly can to transfer messages in the most efficient way possible in order to make the correct set decisions in split-second environments. We don't have to do that in business, but we don't get the time to practice and train like sport does. But there is a sweet spot. Yeah, uh, for sure. I'm also thinking, as a a change then, do you think this is perception that disability or disabled as a word is a bit, it's a spectrum, isn't it? I mean, you think about uh, LGBT, you think about uh, uh, black people, brown people, people from all over the world from various different ethnicities. We lump these people together as BAME. We lump people together of different sexualities and genders as, as LGBT. And do we, do, a, do we lump people together as disabled or with a disability? And one wheelchair person is like another wheelchair person. We design our services for this kind of this middle person that doesn't really exist. Yeah, I think there is a tendency to do that, but in to sort of defend things like, um, you know, institutions, buildings, public transport, there has to be that kind of, we need to cater to the bell curve as much as possible. What we're looking to do is widen that out to all possible scenarios. But yeah, you know, one person with a disability is, you know, is drastically different to another, right? You know, and, and where does disability stop as well? You know, we're just now, you know, focusing in much more on hidden disability. We're focusing in much more 
on mental health as well as physical health, so mental illness as well as physical disability. You know, but where does it stop? There's certain aspects of disability that have absolutely been eradicated in modern society as disabilities. And again, glasses is a good example. Okay, if I ask you to take your glasses off, you may well be able to navigate the world near perfectly. Just the crossword might give you some trouble. But for another person without their glasses, they're done for. You know, left-handed people, you know, we've got what, something, something like seven years. Yeah, all, all the best people are left-handed, Joanne. So, you know, there you go. Um, but so you've got life expectancy seven years less. You know, 200 years ago, you were a witch. Like if you were left-handed or, you know, 100 years ago, someone was taking the pen out of your hand. Is it a disability? Not anymore. Is needing glasses a disability? Not anymore. Okay. You know, in certain situations, is being a wheelchair user a disability? Not anymore. In fact, using a wheelchair is probably a damn sight easier than having to walk on crutches and take every step and being in pain for some people. But it still is enough of a, a hindrance on on our lives. So, yeah, to lump everyone in one category is is kind of folly. What we're looking to do is bring it back to Joanne and Andy. And what do you need? What do you need to make things better today? What, what do you need over and above what's what's there and even what's the norm to to make things better today? To to, to what, what do you need to put? you at parity with everyone else traveling today. And this is where we go into this. People may have heard of this, the social model of disability, rather than the physical model of disabilities or the medical model, where it's society that makes you less able to perform your, your day. So it's removing these societal constructs of curbs. We, we invented curbs. We can de-invent them or create other ways of working. Or we've invented taps that turn on like this. We can reinvent taps that turn on differently, et cetera. Exactly, exactly. You know, everything like that, things like automatic doors and, and stuff like that. And there's all, you know, you know, the, the curb thing is, is for me is always a really good example of empowerment because I've traveled a lot and worked a lot in Asia. Um, I get asked, there's this misconception, this misconception that the West is fantastic at disability and that Asia is very backward around it. And it simply isn't true. You know, if I had to draw one hard, fast distinction, I would say there's less empowerment in Asia. And what I mean by that is if we spot there's a curb in the West and it gets to be a pain in the backside for whatever reason, eventually someone will come along, put a drop curb in and everyone will go about their business in Asia, what they may well do is station two people by the curb to lift the person up over the curb. The end result's the same, but it's very disempowering. We're not teaching people to help themselves, you know, and that's what we want to do. I don't, I don't want people to need to help me. I want to be able to go about my business as best I possibly can. Now, you know, and that, you know, that's something I'm able to do. There are always going to be people with disabilities, um, mental or physical that are going to need permanent help, you know, and that's, that's never going to go away. That person to person assistance around disability, whether it is in the sphere of travel or not, is never going to go away. So understanding what help people need, asking them if you're able to communicate with them what they need and understanding why they need it and how it makes them feel if they do or don't get it is probably the important thing. I hear you. I hear you completely. And I, I think what I'm picking up from what you just said there is just going back to this plan B, isn't it? So in the Asian model of, of the curb, they have their plan B is carry you. What we're trying to say in the UK is our plan B is carry you once, re, re-engineer plan A so it works next time for you. So yes, you can get away with it once. A learning occurs, change occurs. Next time you access it, your plan A now works. That's what we're trying to say. We, we don't want plan B to be the default anymore. We want to learn and incorporate your needs into plan A. Learn and change. I mean, you know, but then in some ways it's kind of really interesting because in some ways when I travel to kind of far-flung places, I'm less fussed about access issues because also maybe the absence of um, more of a plan where that's concerned leads to people being far more helpful and understanding. Certainly nobody in Asia has ever told me, you know, I can't come into their nightclub because I might be a fire hazard or they can't help me up the steps because it's more than my job's worth, mate. 
you know, uh, but that ties in culturally as well because in Asia, a lot of the time, there's quite a lot of shame in failing. People are saying no, which is not an ideal thing. But I know that it's actually, if I want to go in that restaurant, it's got 10 steps up to it. I'm going to go, can you help? <laughs> you know, and loads of people are going to come running and lift me. Now, that works for me specifically as a relatively light guy with a relatively light chair who is okay getting lifted, doesn't feel disempowered by that. Some people hate it. But I'm like, you know what? I want to go up there. I want to get on that boat. Can you, can, you know, I've been carried like a bride across more than one beach in my life and, and slung on a boat because, I, you know, I wanted to be on a boat. I wanted to get in the sea. It was the only way it was going to happen. You know, and, and I'm okay with that. But that's important. That, that's the point. The conversation took place. And I said, can you help me do a thing? And they said, yes, I can. And health and safety is not in the way of that. You know, we don't necessarily have that luxury over there because we've put health and safety rules in place. But if we've done that, then we must be able to serve people within those. So we need to kind of scramble and make our plans a bit better again. But the key in those things you've just talked about is where the power resides. The power resides with you. Power of choice. You're using your power of choice to, to enact what you want to happen. And if you if you think, I'm here, boat's there, I want to go on the boat, there's a beach. The only way I can get on there is give me a chuggy back, stick me on your shoulder, whatever you need to do, because I want to do it more than that. And and you're you're because you're empowered. You don't feel you've lost dignity. You feel you've achieved your objective in that case, don't you? So, so you are a, a Paralympian. So you've, you've you've talked about this throughout our conversation so far. So I'm sure I, I'm dying to hear what, what, what that what doing what where how successful were you? Where did you go? Um, yeah, I mean, look, my my story is rugby through and through. So I was kind of minding my, you know, I, I liked sport growing up. Didn't mean I was any good at it. Just enjoyed team sport. Loved rugby. Sport for people of all shapes and sizes. There's a role for you on a rugby field. Unfortunately, I had a tendency towards the more dangerous jobs in sport. So goalkeeper, wicketkeeper, front row, hooker. Um, broke my neck playing rugby. Rugby is a very safe game. Incidentally, it. It's a freak accident. These things happen. They still do far less than they did. A good example of us making things safer and amending problems as best we can, but catastrophic injury still occurs. So I broke my neck. What that means for me is I'm paralyzed from the chest down with limited use of my hands, uh, and a little bit of, um, a little bit of a deficit in my arms as well. So looking around for sports, what sport am I going to play? Obviously wheelchair rugby or murder ball as it's better known. Um, so I started playing wheelchair rugby. Um, first out, started playing it really um, to get my confidence back, to find a team sport that I could play. You know, my life had changed hugely at, at that age um, to get physically fit. With such a severe physical disability, about four-fifths of my body doesn't work because you understand how your body would. Um I need to make sure that that 20% works as well as it possibly could for me to be able to achieve as much independence as I could in my life and do all the things I wanted to do. And I didn't know what they were. I was 17. Um, but independence is really important. It feeds well actually into our conversation about why, why it's important that things are accessible and people can move around on their own because independence. So anyway, start playing wheelchair rugby, get good at it. You know, you like something, you play it more, you practice more, the harder you work, the better you get, all that kind of stuff. And it really took me around the world. So I was very lucky. I went to three Paralympic Games. I captained the Great Britain wheelchair rugby team for about five years, won three European gold medals, um, sadly never got over the line uh, in a Paralympics or a world, so never did better than fourth. That is a bad place to finish, but there you go, wouldn't take it back. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to, yeah, to, for my final tournament to be the uh, London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games, um, which was amazing. Just an unbelievable demonstration of teamwork and equality, equity. You know, the Paralympic Games specifically is the biggest event for social mobility in the world. It's it, it's huge, you know, and in the UK, you know, we're, we're some of the leaders in you know, showing, you know, strong role models uh, who happen to have disabilities. So, you know, it, it, it's done a lot for me and my life. It launched my career as a speaker, first in schools. It obviously gave me the knowledge within travel to do, you know, what I do now. So 
travel's kind of just a part of me. I, I still speak as well. Wow. A real Olympian. Hey. Um, as you're talking now, I sort of popped it on my head. So currently we have the, the Olympics that people know, and then we have the Paralympics. So two weeks, then a week, then, a, then, then two weeks again. Could we not have them interleaved so we don't have two separate events? Or do you think it's important to have a separate event? I think it's important for a couple of reasons. The, you know, the, the, the first one is you don't want it to lose autonomy or be seen as second two. Um, you know, and now it has enough momentum to be a world event in its own right and huge. And I think that is correct. That is front and center. And people see fantastic world-class sport from people who happen to have disabilities. That idea of this is just disabled people having a go, died a death a while ago. And probably the final nail in the coffin would have been London. If you, if you know anything about sport, you know how hard these athletes work, you know, it, they just happen to have a disability. The second is logistics. You know, it's the biggest sporting event in the world, the Olympics. Um, and, you know, it's represented by people from, from every single country. Um, so over 200 countries in the world, you have an Olympic village houses X amount of thousands of people. You can't really logistically just increase that by. The Paralympics is something like 50, 60, 70% the size of the Olympics. You can't really just nearly double the size of that event, which is already huge and requires its own village. We're talking about hosting 27 simultaneous world championships when we talk about an Olympics. Uh, it's a bit of a scramble to just then go and host nearly 60. So for, for those two reasons, I'm happy with it being its own separate event. What I would do is every four years... I would change the order. So one four years Paralympics went one went first, one four years Olympics went first. And there's pros and cons to being first or second. I think Channel 4 spun it brilliantly um, in 2012 when they put all their ad campaigns out that said, thanks for the warm-up, meaning the Olympics. It was like, yeah, you guys were the curtain raiser, now it's the real stuff. So, it, you know, you can, you can spin it how you want it. And the fact is that so many people, the, the Paralympics in London sold out you know, the tickets were cheaper. I don't care about that. That's market forces. Tickets are going to be cheaper in Paris sport. They're going to be cheaper in youth sport. They're going to be cheaper in women's sport. Is it right? Not necessarily, but does it get bums on seats? And if it does, that's fine by me. Um, so it sold out. And I think a lot of people as well that were naysaying about the Olympics saw how amazing it was and then scrambled and thought, I still want to be a part of that. I've never seen anything like it before or since in terms of the adulation that we had as athletes, in terms of the, um, you know, the, 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 the spectator numbers, the crowds, people that just wanted to be involved. It was an absolute privilege and something I'll, I'll never, ever forget. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying there. I think you're right. From having, again, it's about power and agency. Is your event for you? You're, you're, you and your fellow Paralympians are owning that event as a celebration of you. And it's not about trying to be the same as anybody else. It's about trying to be your own identity. And I think that's, that's extremely important. Uh, I mean, language obviously is, is, is really critical around this stuff. And we talked earlier about whether you're with a disability, have a disability, a disabled user, a wheelchair user, or a, 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 all these various terms, complex. And one thing I was thinking about as you are talking there, is that uh, we, we have women's football, we have women's cricket, we have women's tennis, and then we have football, tennis, and cricket. I, I want to keep women's football, women's cricket, women's tennis, but I want to have men's football. <laughs> so what we don't have is men or male or the privilege is the default, therefore we don't need to prefix it. So it should be we have the, the, men, the men's football FA Cup, and we have the women's football FA or women's FA Cup. And so they're both prefix. That way, that way, women, women's football isn't seen as the second best. It's just seen as women's and men's or, you know, there's a whole other conversation about degendering sport. And but that's a whole other conversation. Let's not go into that. But I think it's important that we don't recognize women as being not the default as being second best. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a really good argument. I've, you know, 
I've had um, some involvement with the Women's Sport Trust in the past, and that 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 point has definitely come up and been made. It's because you know to say women's football and then football implies that football is the real football, you know, you know, and it's you know that's that's not right. That's absolutely not right. And you'll see that in athletics, it happens by default. In in tennis, it, it normally happens by default, you know, because it's you know it's a way of you know. Whose singles final is it? Well, it's the men's singles final or it's the women's singles final. And, you know, and again, you know, things like, as just mentioned, changing the order. Why not one year at Wimbledon just have a women's final on the Sunday? You know, and the men's final on the Saturday was what? You know, if, if, if it didn't matter in the first place, why would it matter to switch it? Like, and it's so, yeah, I think, I think it's really important to, you know, I don't, I don't know about sort of degendering completely because otherwise that's just confusing. You know, what am I watching if I'm not being told whether it's men's or, or women's? So like, I, I'd rather, you know, you, you, you're, you're proud about your, your gender, you know, within the sport or, you know. Yeah. I, I think that was more about the conversation about whether non-binary people, how do non-binary people compete in sport? Um, there's a huge debate around, uh, Trans people, trans masculine, trans feminine people competing in their acquired gender and whether they have disadvantages or advantages, uh, around their performance. There's a whole, whole debates around that. And, and there are many sports where people's gender is not actually the deciding factor. And so people can compete fairly. So those are the sports we should be looking at saying, well, it actually doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a woman's or a man's. But then there's also the argument that, uh, women still want to be proud and have their own event in the same way that you as a Paralympian want your own Paralympic event. And women want their own event as well. And that's, that's quite right. But it's trying to work out how we create um, a freestyle, all-style type event that people can opt to compete in if they want to as well. It's very interesting, actually, that in wheelchair rugby, it's actually a co-ed sport. You know, we're able to do that by virtue of the classification system. You know, now if you don't know what the classification system is, it's a way of us categorizing the severity of your disability. You know, not how good you are at the game, but basically how, in a physical sense, in a very physical sense, how how many muscles you have to play the game. Uh, you know, and that has to happen because otherwise it's an unfair playing field. If you were, you know, a good example would be, I've said I'm paralyzed from the chest down with limited use of my hands and arms. You know, people with a disability in all four limbs are eligible to play my game. So in theory, somebody could come in who's just missing two legs from, you know, just below, just above the knee and missing their arms from the wrists. That person has their entire trunk to their disposable and stuff like that. They can move and they can, you know, they can, they can, they can navigate the court in an entirely different way to me. So we have to award points numbers. You know, so we can say you're worth this many points on the floor because we have to draw the lines somewhere. And that's how we are actually able to fit um, women into the male framework. Whether we get to a point where our sport grows and the women, there have been some women's only events, but at the minute, the women really enjoy playing the mixed version of the sport. And it's just one of those happy idiosyncrasies of our sport and disability and the way it works. That, that we can make that fit into the classification. You know, women play at half a point, um, uh, half a point less than men for their disability because we had a big conversation about it and went through the, well, if you're disabled, you're disabled. It doesn't matter. But we took into account, you know, your bone density, your fat to muscle ratio. And we were like, actually, no, you know, as a woman, you are at a disadvantage if you have the same functionality as a male. So you play half a point less. Which is really interesting because in, in theory, in our game, the best possible team in an imagined future would be for female players. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's a really, you know, a really interesting concept. And it's just, you know, it's not here nor there. It's just a, ni- a nice thing to kind of think about and a neat little solution that we've made in a very niche part of the world. I, I said the same when we look at whether we can level the playing field in, in terms of men's sport, women's sport, or even making it uh, trans accessible is learning from Paralympics, learning from ways we can value each person as an individual and give, I mean, sport is a human right. Compete, competition should be a human right. So if we can allow everybody to compete at their sport in the way they can without feeling discrimination or without feeling 
they've got to apologize for being a bit taller or a bit shorter. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's really hard. It's really hard in, in competitive sport. Um, particularly where trans is concerned, sort of interested to sort of, you know, hear, hear what you think about where, where physicality is not the deciding factor. That's, that's one thing. And then sort of wheelchair rugby, although the sport's a contact sport, it's the chairs that get smashed to bits. We have these special wheelchairs around us. We smash them to bits every 18 months. Direct person to person contact. How, you know, th- this is where some people will get squeezed out just on the safety factor to other people, not themselves. Your own safety is your choice. And that's that's a really difficult one because I'm looking and thinking specifically at rugby and about articles I've I've read around sort of, you know, trans athletes in rugby and it, it feels really difficult. And if I'm honest, I I don't know the answer. No, I don't know the answer either. I, I think from my personal view is that there are lots of views, lots of opinions, lots of people to take into account. And the best solution is to sit down collectively and have an open discord and, and a constructive outcome for everybody. So nobody, so it, it's, it's trying to move the bell curve, as you were saying, not just to be narrow, to try and widen that bell curve so that there's more people included. And if you don't fit the criteria, you understand why you don't fit the criteria. And there's a plan B. There's a different, there's a different, maybe there's a, another competition for people who don't quite fit the, the normal, this, this bell curve of criteria. We've got another one that caters for these people and we do it differently. And I think somehow there's got to be, there's got to be a solution somewhere where everybody feels they're gaining and nobody feels they're losing. Yeah. They're, they're, and there, you know, there is the Paralympic model isn't a bad place to start, although it's not without its issue because. You know, we are we are seeing things, a big thing going on in wheelchair basketball at the moment, whereby a lot of the top classes, so I'm going to say the most able classes, are getting reclassed. And some of those people are being told they aren't disabled enough to play because they have minimal disabilities. But they are still, there's no way those people are going to be able to compete on an equal footing in able-bodied basketball. Yes, they have minimal disabilities compared to somebody like myself, in fact, compared to many wheelchair basketball players. So it's it's imperfect. There are going to be people that get squeezed out. There are going to be people that fall on the right side of the lines, people that fall on the wrong side of the lines. You know, if ever you watch a, a wheelchair race, for example, and somebody wins by a ridiculous margin, as a person with a slightly more trained eye, your immediate thought might not necessarily be, wow, they're so much better than everyone else. You're like, wow, there's quite a lot of function going on there. Not that they're in the wrong class, but they're, 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 they're the optimal level of functionality for the class they're in. So there's always going to be that problem. You have it in rugby with, say, when, when you look at um, uh, Maori players compared to, um, say, white players in, in New Zealand or anywhere around the world for that matter, you know, because of the, the lean muscle to, to, to fat ratio and stuff like that, you know, uh, but that's, that's the way you're born, you know, and that, that's the difference. And now that comes up against trans. If you feel like you're born in the wrong body. I'll compete. And, and sport often is leveraging every advantage you have as a human being to win. And, and elite man athletes, swimmers, uh, sprinters, they're leveraging their bone structure, their muscle, their history, their background, their culture, all the things that make them them, their mental attitude as well. So it's, it's a combination of being using your body and your mind to win at all costs is kind of the theory, isn't it? So if we start denying people the ability to use their body to the maximum, then we have to start classifying people who are uh, from different continents different racial backgrounds are saying, well, hang on a minute, you're taller and thinner traditionally than people from this country. And people in this country are, are generally more overweight, less sun, etc. So then we end up classifying everybody and that becomes even less fair, doesn't it? That's the thing. And to use a very controversial word in, in the best possible way, you know, and, and this has been sort of done before, you know, the freak aspect is what makes sport awesome. And it was another great Channel 4 marketing campaign um, because it called the Paralympians freaks of nature before it called them superhumans. 
And then everyone got up in arms about it. They were like, whoa, we call Usain Bolt a freak of nature, and it is an entirely positive label we give him. So they were just playing with that idea of, of, of people's interpretation of, of what freak means. If you've lived at altitude all your life and you grew up running God knows how many miles every day or cycling up and down mountains every day, yeah, your, your, your entire um, – your, 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 your entire – gosh, the word's gone right out of my head. Your entire physiology – is going to be different. How do you think Sherpa in Nepal, you know, drag rich people up Everest every single day? Not not rich people that aren't experienced, but Sherpa simply just nip up and down like it's not a problem, <laughs> you know. And that that's environment, uh, you know. So it's yeah, it's it's, it's a really complex and an and interesting conversation. And I think we'll let our listeners uh, ponder on that uh, conversation and, and thoughts. Uh, maybe if you're listening and you have an opinion, uh, then do drop me a line and tell us about it. Maybe you'd like to come on a future podcast episode and talk about your perspective on this topic. Uh, well, Andy, it's, it's been absolutely awesome. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I can't believe how quickly the hour has flown by. And hopefully a couple of listeners are still with us out there listening along. Because I'm, I'm sure that there's so much to take inspiration from, so much to ponder. You've got an immense amount of experience and you're doing some fantastic work, uh, to promote accessibility on, on transport and in the world. So how can, uh, our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, you've got a website. Yeah. Simple for me. Check me out. Um, www.andybarrow.co.uk. So Barrow, B-A-R-R-O-W. And you can find um, all my social channels on that. So through that website, you'll be able to hit my, you know, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, and my email is andy at andybarrow.co.uk. So pretty simple. It's pretty simple. And you're open to people just randomly connecting on LinkedIn or, or, or doing an inquiry for speaking or consultancy, et cetera. Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. Please do get in touch. You know, if you've enjoyed what we've said today, if you, you know, got you know any, anything to add or, or, or you think I can help you, then yeah, please do get in touch. Thank you so much. Well, a huge thank you to uh, the listeners for tuning in and uh, sticking with it. Uh, please share this uh, podcast with your friends and do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. I have a number of exciting guests lined up and I'm sure you'll be inspired by them over the next few weeks and months. And if you'd like to be a guest, please let me know. I'd welcome your feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show. So drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and it has been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.